Please be advised that the following segment contains a discussion about suicide and self-harm. If you're experiencing negative thoughts, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the website at lifeline.org.au. Welcome to the Young Diplomat Society's Global Questions podcast. This is Charlotte Langwearing and today I'm interviewing someone I and many others I'm sure listening have long admired, Julian Burnside. I cannot believe that any human being in this country would behave like that. You know, we drive them to despair and then turn away someone offering simple human help. Julian began his career as a commercial barrister and as a QC and is now quite renowned for his work in human rights and refugee advocacy, authoring of multiple books and a recent entry into the political fray in an attempt to unseat treasurer Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong. Dubbed an Australian National Living Treasurer in 2004, he was also made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2009. Thank you for coming in today, Julian. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, And I'm neither young nor diplomatic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think you still belong on this podcast. Um, I guess we should start with how you moved into the world of refugee advocacy. I believe it was after the 2001 Tampa case that you became a more outspoken critic of Australia's refugee policy, particularly the system of offshore detention. Could you tell me about how you became involved in the case and your experience working on it? Yeah, I actually, I was briefed in the Tampa case for the asylum seekers. And it was all accidental because I had recently done a case uh, for the fugitive Mexican banker, Carlos Cabal. And the solicitor who'd briefed me in that case, um, when the Tampa episode happened, he uh, asked me if I would appear for the asylum seekers who'd been rescued by the Tampa, and I said, of course. And I did it knowing nothing about refugees. I knew nothing about refugee policy. I I did it because what people don't remember, people of your generation are probably at kindergarten or not even around anyway. I think I was five at the time. Yeah. (laughs) The Tampa was a Norwegian cargo ship and it was travelling across the northern part of Australia and the Australian government contacted the captain of the Tampa and said, look, there's this little refugee vessel called the Palapa, which has begun to fall apart in the Indian Ocean, was heading towards Christmas Island, which is a little speck of Australia in the Indian Ocean. And John Howard asked the captain of the Tampa, Arne Rinnan, if he would rescue these people. So he did. As he saw the Palapa, he thought it might have 50 people on board. He threw a rope ladder over the side and was amazed when 438 people climbed up the rope ladder. And they're all stuck on the deck of the Tampa, uh, mostly in the shade of the containers on the deck. But a lot of the time, when there was no shadow being cast, they were just in the full sunlight. Now, the reason I agreed to do the the case was because I've I've always felt the heat. I've always uh, felt the sun very badly. And I thought it must be awful being there stuck on the steel deck of a ship in the tropical sun, almost on the equator. And and what happened was that the Tampa collected these people, Arnrin and headed towards Christmas Island because some of the people were sick. He was the Tampa was licensed to carry fifty people from memory. He had forty seven crew and four hundred and thirty eight unexpected passengers. So he heads towards Christmas Island to put them ashore. 
And what happened was that the Australian government said, you don't have permission to enter Australian waters off Christmas Island. Arnrinan grappled with the problem and decided that the well-being of the people he'd rescued was more important. So he sailed into Australian territorial waters off Christmas Island and John Howard sent out the SAS who took command of the bridge of the Tampa at gunpoint. And that's when the standoff started. And that's when I began to think, God, these poor bastards, they've, they're stuck in the tropical sun. Um, and I could only imagine how dreadful that must have been for them. So I did the case. And by doing the case, I learned a great deal about what was being done to asylum seekers and how awful we were being to refugees generally. And um, that's when I became sort of outspoken, I suppose. And were you quite political before this case? Totally not. I never had any interest in politics. I grew up in a liberal voting household. I voted liberal out of habit up to it, including 1996. I actually voted for John Howard in the 1996 mm. election, um, not out of any sense of conviction, but just because it's what you did, you know? And I had no interest in politics, whatever. And I still think it's a scungy business because they do such nasty things. Mm. And the judgment, could you tell me about the judgment of the Tampa case that you Yeah, on? well, the interesting thing is um, we went off to court on a Friday afternoon and I thought that it would probably just, you know, roll over. And But the Commonwealth came along and they said they wanted the trial to start then and there. So we ran Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and the judge reserved on the Wednesday after oh, all was very quick. <laughs> was very quick, and um, judgment in our favour, let me say, was handed down by the trial judge at two fifteen in the afternoon in Melbourne, on the eleventh of September two thousand and one, eight hours before the attack on America. Wow! And all of a sudden, the attack on America was what provoked John Howard to start calling boat people illegal, which is false. But back then, I mean, I remember the atmosphere of the time very clearly. Back then, after September 11, you could say anything that was adverse to Muslims and get away with it. The atmosphere was really poisonous. All of that, you know, could have, it could have just disappeared except for two things that happened. One was my wife, Kate, who's an artist and thinks like an artist, um, said, this is outrageous. It's not the way Australians are. Most Australians care for other human beings. Most Australian houses have a spare room, so let's set up spare rooms for refugees. That was that was the way she thinks, you mm. know. And I said, well, look, if we're going to try and encourage people to offer free accommodation in their spare room to refugees, then we really need to lead by example. So since yep. late 2001, we've had refugees living at home with us, and we've still got one mm. living at home with us. So that was one thing which made it kind of difficult to shift my ground. But the other thing happened in, I think, May of the following year. It concerned an Iranian family. They had fled Iran in dreadful circumstances. They were not Muslim, by the way. They belonged to a pre-Christian sect mm. that were are regarded by the Muslim majority in Iran as unclean and suffered the consequences of that. They fled Iran at 2 o'clock one morning in terrible circumstances, and it's this family... To their misfortune, they turned south rather than north, so they ended up heading, you know, down towards Australia. They don't go through any 
countries that have signed the Refugees Convention. They end up in Indonesia, which has not signed the Refugees Convention. So in none of these countries are they safe. Um, they then use a people smuggler to help them get across to Australia. The family comprises mum and dad and two daughters who are aged 7 and 11 at the relevant time. They get put up in detention in the Woomera Detention Centre, which is in the South Australian desert, or was, it's now closed. And after about 15 or 18 months, they're all doing it pretty hard, but especially the 11-year-old girl. And she was in a terrible way. A psychiatrist from Adelaide went to Woomera, spoke to the girl, spoke to the family, delivered a devastating um, psych report to the uh, Australian government, which, amongst other things, said that the entire family had already in, suffered more than the human capacity to endure. It pointed out that this, the 11-year-old girl had simply lost hope. She had stopped eating. She'd stopped grooming herself. She'd stopped brushing her teeth. She'd stopped brushing her hair. She was frightened to go to the toilet block at night because it was 200 metres from their cabin. She would wet the bed every night and she'd wet her clothes every day. And he said she needs daily psychiatric care. But back then in Woomera, if you needed psychiatric help, you would see the visiting psychiatrist roughly once every six or seven months. The department moved the family to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and that's where I first met them. The reason for moving them, of course, was that the 11-year-old Martab needed daily psychiatric care. But for the first few weeks of their time in Maribyrnong, nobody came to see her. Not a psychiatrist, not a nurse, not a social worker, not a doctor, nobody. And on a Sunday night in May of 2002, while her parents and her young sister were off having their evening meal, Martab alone in their cell in Maribyrnong Detention Centre took a bedsheet and hanged herself. Now, she was only little, didn't know how to tie the knot. She's still strangling when they come back. They, they got her down. She tried to swallow some shampoo because she knew she could hurt herself that way. They grabbed that off her. So she and her mother and two ACM guards were taken to the general hospital nearby. The guards were there not because she was likely to run anywhere, but because, as a matter of legal analysis, they're still in immigration detention if they're accompanied by officers of the department. Con Karapanagiotidis from the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, which had been opened only in the middle of the year before. Con was looking after their visa application. He heard about this. He went to the hospital about 9 o'clock, 9.30 that night, said, g'day to the guards, said, I just want to speak to the mother to see if there's anything I can do to help. And the guards said to him, no, you're not allowed to see them because lawyers visiting hours in immigration detention are 9 to 5. And they turned him away. He then rang me at home about 10 o'clock that night and I have never since then got over the sense of uh, anger that that phone call generated. I cannot believe that any human being in this country would behave like that. You know, we drive them to despair and then turn away someone offering simple human help. It's shocking. Yeah, it really tells you about the human cost of this policy that the government has run for a very long time now. Was this, this was quite early on in your involvement in refugee advocacy, but you still work with, with refugees and asylum seekers to this day, don't you? I do, because that incident concerning Martab, that really 
distressed me. I mean, that, that locked me into the issue. Mm. And I have to say, it's very strange, but since 9-11, political attitudes have shifted so much that whilst I have always been, I would say, a conservative person, rather to the right of centre, ex-liberal voter, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm now regarded by some liberals, some contemporary liberals, as a hardline lefty, which mm. is insane. I don't actually think I've shifted, um, but the political so spectrum has it? moved so far yeah. to the right that I'm now regarded as being on the left, mm. which is weird. So coming back to the Tampa case and the judgment on 9-11, which is quite astounding, um, the timing um, that morning. Oh, the timing, the timing. yeah, that's right. The timing actually had another implication, and that was uh, that the government was due to have an election later that year. Oh, right, yeah. Tampa episode happened just two months before the election was due. Mm. And it's very hard for people to remember, but John Howard was looking as though he would not get back. He, really? He'd been elected in 1996. In 2001, middle of 2001, he was looking a bit shaky. And his last fling of the dice, I think, was the Tampa episode, it worked really well for him, given mm -hmm. that it coincided with 9-11. It was the start of offshore processing because during the Tampa case, the Australian government did a deal with Papua New Guinea mm -hmm. to use Manus Island and Nauru to use that as places where we could send asylum seekers. Given the impact of 9-11, John Howard won handsomely in the November 2001 election because his his ploy played off. And it was in that preceding that election that he his quite infamous declaration was, uh, we will decide who comes to this country and the manner in which they come. Yeah. And I believe that was also after the... That was after Tampa. After yeah. Tampa and after the children in, in overboard fact, Well, the children incident. overboard. The children well, so overboard in, incident. So yeah, so called. <laughs> the children overboard incident happened in early October mm. 2001. Well, the way it was portrayed was that people on a refugee boat approaching Christmas Island had thrown their children into the ocean in order to force their way into Australia. The fact is, uh, I actually dug up what, what Philip Ruddock said at the time. Philip Ruddock, of course, was then the immigration minister. He said, a number of people have jumped overboard and have had to be rescued. More disturbingly, a number of children have been thrown overboard. I regard these as some of the most disturbing practices that I've ever come across in the time that I've been involved in public life. And Howard, the following day, said, I express my anger at the behaviour of those people, and I repeat it. I can't comprehend how genuine refugees would throw their children overboard. But these are politicians, OK, playing political games and getting lots of coverage for it. One of the sailors who... The, the boat was intercepted by the HMAS Adelaide. One of the sailors on the Adelaide was able seaman Laura Whittle. And Laura Whittle said this, When I saw that man with his daughter, it just made my heart melt. The girl had on a pink jacket and she had curly hair. And it was like the father was saying, Take her, take her. He was holding the, you know, he's holding the child out mm. towards the people on the Adelaide. That was the gesture he was making. It was like, give her a chance. And it was then that I moved out of work mode and the humanity began to kick in. I thought, 
He just wants to save his little girl. He wants her to have a better life. That's when I started to think so differently. How could somebody be so desperate to head towards the unknown with their children on a rickety boat and put everything at risk? They must have been coming from something terrible and it made me think, this isn't right. This isn't how things should be. Now, that's someone who was there at the time, uh, who saw through the lies of children overboard, who saw desperate parents trying to do anything they could to save their children. You can't really imagine many parents in any culture around the world, no matter what the circumstances are, that would be willingly throwing their children no, overboard. No. It's quite astounding that they <laughs> used that as a political tactic. Um, I guess we should tie into that a discussion around Australia's history with refugees and the government's policies, because it has been quite long and complex. And I think that for listeners to gain a full understanding of the current policy, a brief summary of the more recent history might be necessary. So we know that we had the TAMP, following the TAMPA affair, we then had the children overboard incident and Howard subsequently winning the election. And we then had the birth of the Pacific Solution around that period as well. Well, the Pacific Solution was created during the TAMPA episode. Right. During the TAMPA. Whilst Mm. we're actually in court with the TAMPA. In fact... On the third or fourth day of the hearing, the Australian government volunteered that the people who were still on the deck of the Tampa could be transferred to the Manura, which is a troop ship, and that it would be much more comfortable for them. So it was said. As it turned out later, after the... I mean, we we won in a trial, but a couple of days later on appeal... We lost 2-1, so they're then taken by the Manura to Manus Island or Nauru, as the case may be. We learned from uh, one of the people who'd been rescued by the Tampa and who was on the Manura and was taken to Nauru, we learned that they were all put in the tank deck. This is a ship that has a deck which is at um, you know the level of the pier where tanks can roll on and roll off right next to the engine room. So here they are in a great big giant steel box with the engine bellowing away behind them. And that was supposedly because they would be more comfortable. It's uh, scandalous. Incidentally, about Nauru, to think that Nauru, which is a bankrupt nation and only does these things because we pay them money, Nauru is an independent republic. It has a voice in the UN the way Australia does. But Nauru itself a Pacific island almost on the equator, is smaller than Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. Yet we think they can just take our surplus refugees. Mm. But Australia's history of refugees raises a very interesting point given the way white people arrived in Australia. There's a cartoon I saw in a recent book and it's a black fella standing at Sydney Cove looking down at the first fleet lying at anchor. He's got a can of British paints in one hand and he scrawled, stop the boats. (laughs) You know, we act as if we've taken this place by right and we'll just keep it for ourselves and Mm. block anyone else out. But on refugees generally, Australia, you know, we were one of the early signatories to the Refugees Convention. Mm -hmm. It was created in 1951. We signed it in 1954 track record with refugees is interestingly mixed. Mm. There are three streams of refugees who come into Australia. The first stream is the people who are chosen by Australia from refugee camps in other countries, typically Africa. They 
are handpicked. They're brought to Australia. They're treated very well. They're helped to integrate into the community. It's a brilliant pro program. Most countries don't do it, and we do, for obvious reasons. We have a quota. That's fair enough. I think the quota is 13,500 a year. The second stream of refugees, which most Australians are completely ignorant of, are people who come from countries where it's possible to get a visa to come to Australia. Anyone who's travelled outside Australia and coming back, you notice that the airlines check very carefully your right to enter Australia. They'll check your passport if you're an Australian, they'll check your visa if you're on a non-Australian passport. And the reason they are so careful about it is that the Australian government has said to the airlines, if you bring anyone here who's not entitled to enter the country, you can fly them back to their point of embarkation at your own cost. So they become an informal extension of the Immigration Department. Now, a lot of people who are able to get visas to come to Australia, so business or study or tourism or whatever, they come to Australia by aeroplane, which is safe and inexpensive, relatively speaking. They clear passport control and then apply for asylum. And they're allowed to live in the community. Most Australians are completely unaware that they exist. They cause no trouble to anyone. They succeed in their asylum claims in maybe 30% of cases, 30 or 40% of cases. Um, The third stream of refugees coming to Australia are people who come from countries which are known to produce refugees, countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan with the Hazaras who are fleeing, uh, countries like Myanmar with the Rohingyans who are fleeing, countries like Syria with a lot of people fleeing because of various forms of persecution. And those people can't get visas to come to Australia. And so the only way of getting anywhere safe is to use a people smuggler. And they're the ones who end up coming, they, you know, they come down the way through to Malaysia, Thailand and so on, and then they end up in Indonesia and there they have to use a people smuggler to give them a trip across the ocean in a boat. And so those are the boat people and they succeed in their asylum claims in more than 90% of cases. So we are completely indifferent to the ones who are probably not refugees, but we mistreat as harshly as possible the ones who are almost certainly refugees. Mm. It's really bizarre. And to be honest, most Australians, no matter what their politics, most Australians, I think, would be very troubled if they knew what we are doing to refugees. But the government has, to its eternal discredit, I think, has continued to call boat people illegal, even though they don't break any law. They call them queue jumpers, even though there isn't a queue. And we treat them in ways that most Australians would be horrified about. You know, and the, the, the practicalities. If oh, Look, if we were, of course, the process now since 2013, the process of pushing them offshore automatically um, is called border protection. So border protection mm. by keeping away illegals sounds like we're protecting the country by pushing back criminals. Now, if that was true, it would make sense, but it's false. So touching on that, we know that uh, asylum seekers, particularly those who arrive by boat, are dubbed queue jumpers, illegals and economic migrants. I did want to ask you how you respond to the use of these labels and how do you counter that narrative? I'm not sure how you counter that narrative or what's the best way to counter it. Any politician who calls boat people illegal 
or queue jumpers or economic migrants is lying to you. Mm. And frankly, I think any politician who lies to the public ought to be exposed. Unfortunately, I have not worked out the best way to expose them <laughs> because, to be candid, most people have begun to tag me as some kind of um, leftist, you know, maniac, not worth listening to. Well, mm. Bleeding I'd, heart lefty. <laughs> uh, that one, yeah. I just happen to be very concerned about the way we treat other human beings. Uh, the idea of calling people economic migrants merely because they have come here and they've succeeded. I mean, they risk their lives. They risk their lives and the lives of their children if they're accompanied by children. They risk everything they've got uh, because nothing left for them. If they get here and they are refugees, their economic circumstances are likely to improve. That does not make them economic migrants. But it just means that Australia is a bit better off than places like Kabul or Quetta. So, so what? I mean, ultimately, you know, I was initially concerned in this whole business. I was concerned about what we are doing to refugees. I'm now concerned about what the Australian character is. You know, what sort of people are we? I think it's a real existential mm. problem. Mm. We have to decide whether we are people who will knowingly and deliberately mistreat innocent human beings or listen to politicians who are dishonest and accept their lies because it's a convenient solace for us. And do you think that um, the government's refugee and asylum seeker policy is reflective of the Australian population? I don't think so. You don't think but so. it is sold with tags like illegal, mm. queue jumper, economic migrant, and uh, I mean, it's it's insane. And we spend so much money on it. Mm. You know, I've often been asked, what are the alternatives? Um, and we know that there's more refugees in the world than Australia could ever manage. But I think there is an alternative which would work a lot better. And it's roughly this. First of all, I would shut down offshore processing. It's insanely expensive and it's cruel and it destroys people. That innocent human beings are destroyed. Um, I would then say, okay, let's assume that the boats start coming again. That's not certain, but it's, it's worth assuming. And I'd say, well, if they, if they start coming again, um, if you must use detention, then by all means put them in immigration detention, but limit that to one month. And at the end of one month, give them an interim visa. And the interim visa would have conditions which allow them to work, allow them full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits. Both of these things are basic to what we regard as ordinary, you know, human decency. Mm -hmm. um, I would say there'd be a condition which said that they have to keep in regular contact with the department so they can't just disappear. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is we're worried about refugees disappearing into the community like they won't be noticed by anyone. <laughs> well, if they're not noticed by anyone, there's probably not a problem. Yeah, they can't be causing yeah. too much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I'd say you've got to stay in regular touch with the department, perhaps by checking in with a post office once a week, something like that. And fourth, and this is the crucial bit, until their refugee status is finally determined, they must live in a specified regional town or city. And now, if you if you make some assumptions, let's assume that all of a sudden the arrival rate of boat people rockets up and stabilises at the all-time record high. The all-time record high since white settlement 
was 25,000 people in one year. Um, let's assume that that becomes the new normal. And let's assume that every single one of them remains on full Centrelink benefits, which is highly unlikely, but just assume it. That will cost, it's easy to work out what it'll cost. It'll cost about $500 million a year. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we're on offshore processing. We are spending $5,000 million a year. Mm. And of course, the $500 million a year, if you assume that, that will all be spent in regional towns and cities around Australia because once you've paid for board and food and some clothing, there's not much left over from Centrelink benefits. So we could actually stop harming people, start doing good for refugees as well as for regional Australia. We could save billions of dollars a year. So I've heard that argument before that our regional towns in particular have the infrastructure but lack the population. They have the jobs but lack the personnel. Is that why you suggest it as well? That's a large part of it. The idea first occurred to me actually when I was invited to give a speech at the Hamilton Club in the Western District of Victoria. Mm -hmm. And the Hamilton Club clearly regards itself as a a comfortable notch or two more important than the Melbourne Club. (laughs) And they invited me to go there and speak, but they asked me to speak about language, not about refugees. So I spoke about language, and at the end of it, every question was about refugees. Now, before I went to the Hamilton Club to give a talk, I had taken a stroll down the main street of Hamilton, and I noticed that there were empty shop windows and, you know, all the signs of a town that is beginning to fade out. And this is a, I mean, a pretty serious town. This was the centre of the patrician uh, Western District. Anyway, I, someone in the audience asked me what I would do instead. So I just invented this idea of regional mm. settlement. And Hamilton loved the idea. Really? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. amazing. Mm. Well, it's amazing. Once you say something and people can see their own uh, personal economic benefit, they're immediately attracted to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A more compassionate policy has been couched in economic terms by um, many people, and it does seem to work on um, those that haven't been persuaded by um, human rights-based arguments. But I think you can make both both arguments. Well, I I mean, I think, you know, back to the existential crisis, I personally am attracted to the idea that treating human beings in a way that is consistent with our view of ourselves is desirable. But I can also understand people who would prefer to follow their own economic self-interest. Mm. So both arguments lead to the same point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Touching on your alternative policy, I would like you to explain how you respond to the more conservative argument that the current policy is actually more compassionate in that it stops the boats, because that's the crux of the Liberal Party line. And how do you respond to I understand the stop the boats. I mean, stop the boats amounts to this. It amounts to saying we're so worried about people drowning that we'll punish them if they don't drown. That was quite neatly captured in... um, circumstances, there are dreadful circumstances on Nauru where a bloke called Omid Masamali and his family had been assessed as refugees but they were told by the Nauruan government there's nowhere else we can send you so you will spend an indefinite number of years living in the community on Nauru. 
Now, the fact is that people on Nauru do not like the refugees, and they're very hostile towards them. And Omid Masamali was so distressed by the thought that he and his family would have to spend however many years living on Nauru before they could go anywhere else, that he went into a public space, doused himself in petrol and set himself alight, and he died. I mean, it's a horrible mm. image, but Kathy Wilcox, who is a great cartoonist, did a cartoon very soon afterwards, a very simple drawing of a man engulfed in flames, and the caption of the drawing is, not drowning. Mm. You know? It's quite powerful. What's, what's the best way to kill a person? <laughs> Let, let them drown at their own choice or mm-hmm. destroy them. Yeah. It's yeah. horrible. But, you know, it's interesting. The attitude, the attitude with which our government treats people stands grotesquely at odds with our view of ourselves as a country. Um, I had a conversation with a woman who worked as a doctor for International Health and Medical Services, IHMS, Um, back in, I think, 2011 or 12, while uh, before automatic offshore processing was a thing, but where people who arrived at Christmas Island would be assessed to see if there's any reason that they shouldn't be sent to Nauru or Manus. And this doctor told me, first of all, they don't get enough time. They're given 24 hours to assess people, and if they assess them as fit to be sent off, then they're sent off. She explained to me that when they arrive, these are people who've come from countries typically which have never seen the ocean before. They come from landlocked countries, uh, and they've typically spent eight or ten days on the ocean in terrible conditions. They typically arrive in clothing, which is caked with their own excrement. They've not had any opportunity to wash or change or anything. When they arrive at Christmas Island... They, if they had any medication on them, it was taken from them and destroyed. So there was one woman, she said, who had a permanent job of sitting in front of a, a bin, popping pills out of blister packs for later destruction. If they had any medical documentation, it was taken and not returned. Any medical prosthetics, false limbs and so on, would be taken and destroyed. There was one woman who had been assessed as mad and therefore not appropriate to send to Nauru and... The problem was no one knew what the nature of her madness was because if she'd had any medication with her, it was gone. If she'd had any medical documents, they were gone. Uh, So this doctor decided to sit down and have a long consultation with this woman and find out what the problem was. Okay, so she sits with her across a a small desk. They don't speak the same language. The interpreter is 4,000 miles away in Sydney on the end of a phone. Eventually, the doctor worked out that the reason for the woman's problem is that she's incontinent of urine, and she can't leave her cabin without having urine running down her leg, and that was driving her mad. So the doctor said to immigration, she needs incontinence pads. Their initial response is, we don't do those. She insisted, and they eventually relented and said, well, okay, she can have them, but a maximum of four per day. Any more than that would be a fire hazard. (sighs) Think about that. So that's, that's the mentality with which we treat people who've come to this country looking for protection from persecution. Persecution of a sort which is unimaginable to most Australians. And it's interesting when you consider that in Australia, I think we have just passed a demographic tipping point 
where we have more people older than 45 than people younger than 45, which has major implications for the workforce for obvious reasons. 51 or 52% of the world's refugees are under 18 years of age. We, we actually need them. The idea that we're turning them away is insane. Mind you, the getting refugees of a sort that we need reminds me of a story that Malcolm Fraser told me. His, the Secretary of the Immigration Department under Malcolm Fraser was John Menadieu. And apparently John Menadieu went to a refugee camp somewhere in Africa looking for refugees for the refugee resettlement program. He went to a refugee camp and he said to the guy in charge of the camp, have you got any doctors or engineers? <laughs> and the man looked at him sorrowfully and said, I'm afraid we've only got widows and orphans. <laughs> mm, well. So, you know, self-interest is an interesting driver, but mm. it probably has no place if we think we're compassionate. Mm-hmm. It has no place in our refugee policy. And to be honest, I don't think you have to be, whatever you said, lefty. Bleeding heart lefty. Bleeding heart lefty. <laughs> I don't think you need to be a bleeding heart lefty to think that compassion is basically part of what we are. It's how we see ourselves. Mm. We think we're compassionate. It's just that we've been conned into behaving as if we're not. I can't, per- can't remember where I read it, but um, there's a line which was, compassion is not finite. Um, It doesn't have to only be given to those within one's nation. It can be extended and it's not, it's not a finite source that has to remain with to one's own people. It can be expanded. I suppose touching on that, the human cost of this policy is quite dire. Reza Batari and his case. Reza Barati, yeah. Barati, sorry. Would you be able to discuss his uh, Reza's death and the circumstances surrounding sure. it? Because that's quite a prominent... Yeah, Reza Barati was on Manus Island um, in the detention centre there, and he died, I think it was the 13th of April, 2000... Uh, 17th of February, 2014. Yeah, thank you. The Minister for Immigration at the time was Scott Morrison... Mm restrain myself <laughs> not tell you what I think of him but dishonest hypocrite would be a significant part of it if that's a restraint <laughs> I wonder what you would have said um, you need to read his maiden speech in parliament mm. where he goes on and on about his Christian values compassion and you know all that sort of thing well if that's what he believes then it's lucky he wrote about it because we certainly wouldn't have worked it out <laughs> Scott Morrison in a rare moment of honesty, or mixed honesty and dishonesty, when Reza Barati died, Scott Morrison said he'd escaped from the camp and was killed outside the camp by locals. Now, that, that was false. He hadn't escaped from the camp. But it was, it was truthful in the sense that it showed the hostility of the mm. Manusian locals to the refugees. Um, anyway, a bloke called Benham Sattar, mm. who was sharing the same room as Reza Barati in the detention centre, Benham Sattar swore a stat deck in which he said that he had seen Reza Barati running across the compound trying to get back to their room, trying to you know, get away from the violence that was happening. Mm-hmm. He was stopped by a bunch of employees of the Australian government uh, they pushed him to the ground and took it in turns to kick him in the head and in mm. the torso. And eventually, um, another man who he names, 
another employee of the Australian government, came along with a large rock and brought it crashing down on Reza Barati's head, and that killed him. Uh, he was killed inside the camp by employees of Australia or of Australian contractors. Um, Benham Sattar, for his troubles, was invited into the cabin of the security people. He was tied to a chair and beaten up and was told that if he was not, if he didn't withdraw his stat deck, he'd be taken outside the camp where he'd be publicly raped by the locals. He stuck to his ground and um, a year and a half later, the people, two of the people responsible for Reza Barati's death uh, were tried and convicted. Interestingly, two Australians who were involved in the episode had been allowed to leave PNG and return to Australia, so they were never charged. Mm. And the two who were convicted somehow mysteriously managed to escape from prison and have never been found again. So that's the story of Reza Barati. It's uh, murdered by employees of the Australian government and no real consequences for anyone. Benham Sattar is still on Manus, still in fear of his life. Because to, he's a witness. He was a witness because, to that Because he stuck to the truth, mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. And, of course, the Australian government can't bear people who tell the truth. <laughs> Benham uh, Sattar um, is still involved in, um, I suppose, uh, a f- the fight, <laughs> isn't he? Um, well, he was. He lent himself to a class action. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which you were involved in uh, Yeah, well. uh, which I put together with a bunch of people. And unfortunately, the solicitors running that have decided not to pursue the case because mm. they would rather try and resolve the problem by helping one person at a time. Mm-hmm. My so only concern about that. My only concern um, about that is that it may take many, many years. Right. So, just for the listeners, this was a class, a class action against the Commonwealth government. Um, and it was an action in negligence um, for a failure to protect um, asylum seekers in offshore detention. But that's now not being pursued anymore, is that correct? Uh, that's substantially mm. correct, yeah. Okay. And it, it was a class action which, the heart of which was, here's what we're doing to these people. Those elements constitute a crime against humanity, against mm-hmm. our own law, against the Commonwealth Criminal Code. And it's also negligent Mm. because whatever your duty of care is, it must include not treating people in a way that constitutes a crime against humanity. There was a little legal device for those who happen to be interested in law. Commonwealth Criminal Code has a number of provisions in it which create various crimes against humanity. The crime of genocide, which was not an offence until October 2002 in Australia. Um, And the reason for us introducing that law is that it's a condition of participation in the International Criminal Court that you have domestic legislation which contains the same offences as those over which the ICC has jurisdiction. The ICC has jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and so on and so forth. So Australia wanting to be part of the ICC, we introduced into the criminal code all these various crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide and so on. But there's a provision which says that a person cannot be prosecuted for any of those offences except with the written permission of the Attorney General. And the Mm. Attorney General does not seem inclined to allow any 
ministers of the Crown to be prosecuted for those crimes against humanity. And it's really, really clear, in my view, that what we've been doing to people in immigration detention onshore and detention offshore does amount to a crime against humanity against our own law. Mm. Now, our law reflects what Australian values are, I think. The, the gap between what we believe and what we do is all mediated by political dishonesty. Um, so I've, uh, touching on that as well, um, we've a core ethos in Australian culture is the idea of the fair go. Hmm. Do you imagine that you don't believe that our policy does constitute a fair go? <laughs> it, it, it does not. I would say no. affirmatively it does not constitute a fair go. No. Driving people to madness, driving people to want to kill themselves, locking people up if necessary for the rest of their lives. Is that a fair go? It's, it's worth noticing that um, our indefinite detention provisions for onshore detention, this is up until 2013 when offshore processing became the thing, that detention was indefinite, which meant, uh, and th- there was a famous test case in the High Court called Alcatab. Alcatab's case concerned a bloke who actually was a continuation of a case called Al-Masri. Al-Masri was a Palestinian refugee who had been assessed as not being a refugee and he had to remain in detention until he could be returned to Palestine. But that was actually not possible because the Israeli government won't allow people to be taken into Palestine. And that meant that he faced the prospect of spending the rest of his life in immigration detention in Australia. Mm-hmm. Indefinitely, um, yeah. When the, that question got to the High Court, they ruled four to three that that is what the law says, and with that meaning, it is valid. So mm. you can lock up an innocent person for the rest of their life, mm. and that's okay. And I think that um, I remember studying that case. This was Alcatab, mm. and there was a discussion around the point of whether it constituted punishment, and the court said, no, yeah. it doesn't. I mean, yeah, that's the separation of powers mm. argument. The answer, as you say, is was no, because it's administrative detention, mm. even though it's just like a jail, just like a high-tech jail. It was called administrative detention for the purpose of assessing a person's refugee status. But it can be indefinite. Um... Well, it can be for the rest of your life, yep. if, yep. as a matter of principle. Mm. The other interesting aspect of this, when you consider what Australian values are, I mean, family values is a big thing in Australia, fair go and family values. Okay, so... There was a bloke contacted me from Manus six or eight weeks ago. He has been on Manus for six years. He was offered a place in America and wanted my advice about what to do. The American switch was a deal done with the Obama government, Mm. which said America will take an unstated number of our refugees and we will take an unstated number of their refugees just so that people don't think that getting to Manus or Nauru means you get to Australia, because it mm. doesn't. In fact, Scott Morrison has said a number of times, and very plainly, you will never be allowed to be resettled in Australia. Um, anyway, this bloke uh, was concerned about this offer of a place in America for two reasons. One was that he had colleagues who'd gone to America from Manus before and who were having a pretty hard time. 
but second and more important, he said his wife and children live in Australia, but he's not allowed to join them. That's deliberately breaking up a family. So he's now in America. Interestingly, the American agreement was the subject of that notorious telephone conversation between Donald Trump and Malcolm Turnbull Mm. uh, shortly after Trump became president of the United States. And he was clearly uncertain about whether he would honour the agreement done with Obama. And at one point in that conversation, he says, why should we take criminals from you? And Turnbull said to him, but they're not criminals. They haven't broken any law. And Trump said, well, why don't you just let them go? <laughs> it's a pretty good question, I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And mind you, mind you if, you, if you want to... If you want any greater criticism of Australia's policy, there could be nothing worse than this, that Donald Trump is now imitating us. And how's he doing that? Well, he's you know, taking people who come across the Mexican border. Mm-hmm. He's locking children in cages. Mm. Um, he's separating children from their parents. He's doing, I mean, he's actually doing worse than we've ever mm. done, I think. Although I'm not aware of any refugees who've been picked up by the Americans who've killed themselves or tried to kill themselves, whereas we've had a lot who've done that. Mm, it's so, a very sad ending, but it's a, it, it is, is a very sad topic. I just hope that one day, and I expect that one day, probably when I'm no longer around, there will be a Royal Commission into what Australia did. Mm. And we'll all look around and say, oh, isn't that shocking? Yeah. Well, it's, we should, we should recognise how shocking it is right now. And put politics to one side, just look at what we're doing, try and find out the facts. In fact, I'd recommend to anyone, any one of your listeners who doesn't like that left-leaning thing, as you said, (laughs) (laughs) Um, bleeding heart left ear. Yes, that's it. (laughs) Write to a member of the present government, especially someone in your, who represents your electorate, and ask simple questions. And I reckon the ideal question is something along the lines of, dear so-and-so, I'm a voter in your electorate. Do you believe boat people are quote-unquote illegal? If yes, what offence do they commit? Yours faithfully. Mm. Now, you'll probably get either ignored or a two- or three-page summary of government policy from a staffer, in which case you write back saying, dear so-and-so, thank you for your letter it didn't actually answer my questions. Here they are again. Do you believe they're illegal? If yes, what offence do they commit? Yours faithfully. And just keep on, keep on at it. Mm. Try and get the truth. Try and get any of them to say what is actually going on and line it up against the truth. And then you've got a choice to make. You can decide either I'm going to let them get away with deceiving us or I'm going to force them to act as Australians act, you know, it forced them to recognise what Australian values are and that what we're doing is not consistent with Australian values. Now, all that said, um, let me make it very clear, we cannot take all the world's refugees, but all the world's refugees aren't trying to get here. We can act a bit more decently than this. And one country that I would put forward as an example of good practice is Jordan. Jordan, Mm. where I spent some time a year or so ago, has not signed the Refugees Convention. They've got very challenging geography with 
Israel-Palestine on the west and Iraq on the east and Syria on the north. And depending on the state of world affairs, they get people literally walking across the frontiers looking for protection. When I was there, there were one million Syrian refugees living in the community allowed to work. This is a country, Jordan is a country with a population of fewer than 10 million. Mm. It's not rich, they don't have oil. And here they are just being hospitable, being themselves. They're being true to their values by simply welcoming people who need to escape to safety. And I think that's what we should be doing. I spent a day or two at a camp up in the north, a few kilometres south of the Syrian border, a place called Al-Zatari. And at Al-Zatari there is a refugee camp which when I was there had 80,000 people in it. Wow. Record was 140,000. Mm. It is a camp, it's not a detention centre. Mm-hmm. So people are free to come and go and people who live inside the camp can get a job outside the camp. And Now because there are so many people there, um, the the main drag through the camp is called the Champs-Élysées <laughs> and um, there's about 2,000 shops that have been established by refugees and which are run by refugees. Wow. And one of those shops is a place where you can hire bridal gowns. <laughs> now, I, I don't know any, I've never met anyone who's been tied up in the Australian refugee system who has enough hope for the future to want to get married. Now, if Jordan can do it, surely we can. Mm. Well, my final question then. Do you have much hope for the future in this area of policy? Do you think the tides will change? I I retain the hope that we will see the light sooner or later. It may take a while. When I first got involved in this, I thought it would take six months to persuade the public. (laughs) (laughs) I was out a bit by that. Um, But I think the rubber might hit the road in a very different way. Although refugees is the issue that people associate me with, I think the number one issue facing humankind at the moment is global warming. Um, it's the the crisis. Climate change is the is the great existential risk facing humankind. Now, one way or another, um, in the next couple of decades, I expect that we'll get a lot of so-called climate refugees Mm. coming to Australia, but they won't be refugees Mm. under the convention Mm. test because they're unwilling to go back to their country of origin, not because of a well-founded fear of persecution, Mm. but because their country has disappeared beneath the ocean or whatever. Um, So I think if we get a lot of so-called climate refugees coming to Australia, um, the brutality of our response to people who come here uninvited will become apparent and that might break things because Mm -hmm. most Australians are aware of what is going on with climate change Mm -hmm. and if they see 30 or 40,000 people a year come to Australia because they can no longer survive in their own country, that might change their minds. Or the tax bill of shunting all those people off to Nauru and Manus will become so horrendous that people will revolt self-interest again. Well, the line, go back to where you came from, won't really work in the case of climate refugees. No, no. There's, um, if if any of the people listening to your podcast are interested in poetry, there is a poem called Home by Warson Shire, who's a 
a Kenyan-born woman um, who lives in London now, I think, and it captures brilliantly what it is to leave your home, why people leave their home, and what it's like to get to another place and be abused by the people from whom you seek safety. We, as human beings, uh, as Australians with Australian values, we need to understand that we are not living true to our values. I think the line from that poem was, you would only leave home if home is the mouth of a shark. Mouth of a shark, that's mm. right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, Julian, um, for coming in today and sharing your wisdom with us. I'm sure that you've educated and inspired many that have listened, and we live in hope. <laughs> well, let's hold our breath and wait. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.